Let's get ready for work. When you look at it from the outside, you think, I'd never be that way. I'd never be an addict. But once you hear some of these people's stories, you think, you know what, but for one or two decisions in their life, they'd be sitting where I am. And but for one or two decisions in my life, I'd be sitting where they are. Judge Charles Elliott of Alabama shares insight and inspiration on four pillars of success, education, career, driver's license, and sobriety. Stay close for episode 31 of Ready for Work, life-changing asset and skills-based solutions in alternative sentencing. Ready for Work is a podcast powered by ACT, showcasing excellence and innovation throughout the workforce ecosystem. Jason Jones hosts this journey with trends and ideas to help your region's workforce reach its highest potential. Let's get ready for work. Welcome to episode 31 of Ready for Work, the first of a two-part series on preparing workforce ecosystems for returning citizen success. Judge Charles Elliott is the presiding circuit judge in Morgan County, Alabama, Partnerships with the community college and economic development leaders across their work-ready community help with the pillars of education and career. The drug court's alternative sentencing model thrives on integrating mental health with a record-breaking positive impact. Judge Elliott, set the stage for us with background on the drug court approach. So drug courts began, I believe the first one started around Miami in the late 80s, early 90s. What people learned was that using the traditional incarceration model, the the traditional criminal justice model for treating addiction just wasn't working. What, I guess it started in Alabama probably 20 years ago, something like that, and have expanded across the state. So now every county in the state of Alabama and all across the country, you see accountability courts or treatment courts, drug courts, mental health courts, veterans courts, things that focus on specific areas of need that can address issues in the population or or issues with the traditional criminal justice method. What's unique about the Alabama model? When I go and speak, one question I always ask is I say, who here has heard of prison overcrowding in Alabama What do you think the percentage is that's incarcerated for nonviolent or drug offenses? People say 60%, 70%, 80, 90, you know. In Alabama, 81% of those incarcerated in the Department of Corrections in Alabama are incarcerated for violent offenses. Only 19% are in for nonviolent offenses. 43% are incarcerated for capital murder, murder, rape in the first degree, or robbery in the first degree. But still, the overwhelming majority, and it's not even close, of convictions that we have in the state are for drug possession. The model now, we try probation, or for some people, we'll try a higher intensity probation called community corrections. Drug courts are for people that are incredibly addicted. They are at a high risk of reoffending. They have a high need for substance abuse services. And so the way I say it is, if you had someone that was sitting across the table from a police officer and there was some oxycodone or Xanax or something like that on the table, and they're told by a judge, look, if you take this, you're going to go to jail. And they'd say... Can I get a glass of water first? Because the fear of incarceration doesn't really move the needle for them because a lot of them, they've been in jail before. They have convictions, things like that. In your courtroom, Judge Elliott, defendants have an opportunity to clear their records. Walk us through that process. What drug courts do is, at least in our program, people will, that are charged with drug or drug-related offenses, your thefts or a fraudulent use of a credit or debit card or forging a check or receiving stolen property, things like that, breaking and entering a car, 
they can plead guilty and I'll take their plea and I'll set it to the side. And so long as they do everything that we're asking for them to do. Most programs, it's about 18 to 24 months. Some people, they can be in the program for three or four years. At the conclusion, if they've completed everything that they're supposed to do, I take their plea and I bring it back and the state of Alabama, the DA's office files a motion to dismiss that charge and that case is dismissed. It can be expunged off their record they are unsuccessfully discharged from the program, they're revoked, then I already have their guilty plea, and then I just adjudicate them guilty and send them to prison. Not only does this model make sense, but you have specific results showing us this is the right approach. Nationwide, drug courts have about a 75% success rate. Of those that successfully complete drug court, 75% of them are rest-free about two years after graduation from the program. Our numbers are a little bit better in Morgan County. Three years after those that successfully complete drug court, about 87% of ours are arrest-free three years down the road. Even those that are unsuccessful in drug court, their recidivism rates are still lower because they're learning skills. They've been to group therapy. They've been to individual therapy. They've learned where there are different 12-step meetings in the area they can go to and things like that. This is an impressive model, Judge Elliott. What components are most critical to the model's success? It's not just about drug screens. It's not just about peeing in a cup for probation officer or something like that. We really have expanded our model to include wellness. And so we've got a terrific partnership with our local community-free clinic. We have a great relationship. We actually have a social worker that's assigned to us. There's an organization called PACT. It's Parents and Children Together, and they offer incredible services in North Alabama. They offer parenting classes for folks that have kids in our program. We've got a lot of folks with kids in our program. And when you see drug issues, the thing that gets so overlooked is the neglect that comes with children. So offering parenting classes, even going into hospitals right when a baby's born and saying, look, here are some things that you need here. If you need resources, if you need phone numbers to call, it's basically automatically getting people connected. When you look at it from the outside, you think, I'd never be that way. I'd never be an addict. But once you hear some of these people's stories, you think, you know what, but for one or two decisions in their life, they'd be sitting where I am. And but for one or two decisions in my life, I'd be sitting where they are. I'll give you two quick stories about folks that are in a program. One, this guy, he graduated from drug court this past Friday. When he's in his, about 25 years old, his dad murders his brother in front of him, holds his brother while he's dying. And not surprisingly, he develops PTSD from that. And his big thing is when he goes to sleep at night, he relives it. So he has these just horrific night terrors. And so for him, the worst thing that can happen to him is going to sleep because he doesn't want to relive it. So he does coffee and energy drinks or whatever you get at the gas station and eventually lands on meth because it keeps him awake the longest. Not surprisingly, he becomes a meth addict. He's in a program for about nine months before he tells our coordinator, well, you know, my nightmares have come back. I said, what nightmares are you talking about? He tells us, and he'd been in our program for nine months and we had no idea. And so then we go, oh, Well, that's what we need to treat then. You know, with each person, with each participant in our program, we try to have as individually tailored of a program as we can. So for this person, it's, well, good gracious, let's get you plugged into some grief therapy. Let's get you plugged into this and this and this and this and this. And then not surprisingly, the nightmares resolve and we're treating causes. We're not just treating symptoms. Thank you for sharing that powerful story with us. It's enlightening how much closer these issues hit to home than we first realized. What are the roles of skills and work across the model? 
trying to just help folks get more success. We've got a great partnership with our local community colleges and the local economic development association that we've had, I believe, 60 people take the work keys test. When people graduate from drug court, ideally, we want people to have the four pillars that they will need to be successful in life. We want them to have a driver's license. We want them to have an education, be it a GED, work keys. We want them to have some education so they can succeed. We want them to be employed. Not just have a job, but we want them to be employed and going forward in that area. And the last thing is you want to be sober. Sobriety seems the ideal destination. You know, I tell folks all the time when they're in front of me, you know, because they'll say, well, Judge, I know that I've put some of my responsibilities with drug court on the back burner because I've got to take care of, be it my kids, or I've got to take care of schooling, or I've got to take care of my job. The take-home message is, look, anything that you put over your sobriety, you'll lose that and your sobriety too. I can easily imagine the success impacts span well beyond the justice system. Studies show that nationwide, for every taxpayer dollar that is spent on drug court, we save about $3.36 in prison costs, probation costs, because you're not having to house them, pay for health care, meals, corrections officers, things like that. But the real incredible number is for every taxpayer dollar that's spent on drug court, we save around $27 per person because now that somebody is sober, if they're sober, they're not going to be in custody. There's that $3.36. But on top of that, you tackle them, well, now they've got a job. Well, if they've got a job, that means they're probably going to have insurance, which means they're not going to be showing up at our ERs uninsured. Now they're paying taxes. But the biggest is they're getting kids out of foster care because if there is anything that I think that is life-changing about the drug court model or treatment courts in general is we can reunite parents with their children. When people graduate from drug court and they'll say, you know, I've got a relationship with my kids again. I'm not just there high on the couch while they're playing on the floor. I'm helping them with their homework. I'm actively engaged in my kid's life. I'm a coach on my kid's baseball team or I'm helping referee games, you know, referee soccer matches, things like that in youth leagues. It is a phenomenal program where where we truly are saving lives. For listeners that want to learn more and hopefully replicate this approach, what else do we need to consider that's unique to this model? Sure. Well, I'd say 20 years ago, drugs were out there and you knew that drugs were a problem, but drugs did not impact seemingly every family the way they do now. You know, a lot of the folks in my program or for people that are on the outside, when you go and watch drug court, It is bizarre. It's not like regular court because when people are doing well, in court, we'll give them a round of applause. Hey, congratulations, you've been sober for six months. Here's a gift card to fill in the blank, to get some gas or get your oil changed for free or or something, something like that. It's the most widely researched, most successful criminal justice program we have in the country. Everything is research based. We deal with incentives and sanctions. We're using positive reinforcement. We're using punishments to try and correct behavior. You're listening to Ready for Work from ACT. Ready for Work. Let's dig deeper on your perspectives for mental and behavioral health, as the symptoms are not always clear early on. I was blessed to grow up in the home that I grew up in. And a lot of folks are incredibly blessed to grow up in the homes they are. But there are some folks, and they come from absolutely horrific circumstances, and it takes a lot of, I would say, misplaced pride. It takes a lot of misplaced self-assurance to say, well, if that happened to me, I wouldn't be where they are. You look at uh, the women in our program, and a lot of them were abused as children. Some of our men abused as children. 
when you hear the stories of what so many of our participants have overcome, you can't help but say, okay, I'm in. Let's do everything that we can. You've been sober for 15 months? Fantastic. What's it going to take to get to 15 months in a day? What's it going to take to get to 16 months? Because for some folks making it through the day, one day is very, very easy. And for other folks, it's, okay, well, it's 9.50 in the morning, and I don't know if I'm going to be sober at 10 o'clock. I had another guy. He graduated high school two years after me. I did not know this until he said, didn't you go to Austin High School? I said, well, yes, I did. He said, I thought so. You were a couple years ahead of me. Pulled up in the yearbook. Sure enough, there he is. When he was 12 years old, his mama starts giving him drugs. Now, I don't care if you've got law enforcement coming in to classrooms and talking about how bad drugs are, and you've got teachers that are explaining that. When your mama's giving you drugs, I mean, we model what we see, and we take on those behaviors. You know, he's 36 now, and he's been sober for probably about two years. It's the longest stretch of sobriety he's ever had in his life. And it took him from basically being 12 until... I guess he entered our drug court program when he was about 32, and he's 36 now, and he's going to be graduating once he gets his court costs paid down. What's on the horizon for this model in mental health integration? You know, in in Alabama, the largest provider of mental health care services is the Department of Corrections. Think about that. The largest provider of mental health services in the state of Alabama is our prison system. When that's where our resources have been going, it's no wonder that we have so many mental health challenges that we deal with. And and Alabama, I'm sure, is not the only state that has those issues. So we hope to start a mental health court in the near future, where instead of addiction being the underlying cause, we're dealing with folks with mental health issues. When you talk to a lot of our first responders, our volunteer firefighters or our police officers, and boy, howdy, you want to talk about things that they see and deal with. We're expecting those whose primary job is to put out fires where there's a car wreck, let's get you on a backboard and let's get you loaded or police officers that are trained to protect us. And now with all of the mental health challenges that we see out there, we're expecting them to be social workers, to be mental health care workers and be able to, to diffuse so many situations. And so that's something that we hope to get off the ground before too long. Charles Elliott is the presiding judge in Morgan County, Alabama, sharing with us some life-changing asset and skill-based solutions and alternative sentencing. Thank you so much. And if I can ever be of any service, if anyone ever has any questions about drug court, I'm happy to talk with them. We provided a link to connect with Judge Elliott in our show notes for episode 31. This is the first of our two-part series on successful re-entry initiatives. Coming up on episode 32, we introduce a new toolkit and a five P's approach to preparing workforce ecosystems for returning citizen success. Episode 32 is available now and our show notes include a link to sign up for the toolkit as well. Here are a couple of other episodes in our archives you may wanna check out on re-entry strategies. Episode 19 showcases Missouri's success using work keys to prepare returning citizens for steady employment on release. In Episode 7, we visited with Dr. Tina Manis in Connecticut on the role of social and emotional learning for returning citizens in the Empowered Reentry Program. Ready for Work is a service from your friends at ACT, a mission-driven nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people achieve education and workplace success. Discover more online at act.org slash readyforworkpodcast. Now, let's get to work.